I just wanted to uh, say thank you to all of you in the church, all of those of you who have given so generously to our offering that we uh, took up uh, over the, a few weeks ago, over a couple of weeks, and we were looking to raise uh, £50,000 in terms of working, continuing our work with Christians Against Poverty, in terms of working alongside Compassion and starting to develop that, uh, and Compassion is a charity that works uh, with children around the world who are in poverty, looking to release them from poverty, and also uh, uh, to uh, carry on our work alongside Commission, that's the family of churches that we belong to and who we'll be gathering with at West Point, as you were hearing about earlier. And uh, we were aiming for 50,000, and uh, to date we've raised over 54,000. So I want to say thank you so much for your generosity. I really appreciate it, um, and uh, really thank God for you. Every time I pray for you, I thank God for you. Okay, we're going to uh, be uh, moving on, looking at one of the uh, most exciting passages uh, of Scripture uh, in the book of Job. And this morning's entitled, Why Should I Be Quiet? And there are moments in life when we are really uptight about something, and we've got something on, we, we're raging, we can't stop going on about it. It fills our minds, fills our emotions, everything. And uh, uh, for many of us, we cry out to God, and, and there just seems to be silence. And, um, and we feel like God doesn't care. And this morning we're going to be looking at a passage uh, from uh, uh, Job chapter 38, and we're going to be looking at, and we're going to be picking up, and we're going to be seeing what God's, how God responds to us when we feel like that. So we're going to read, uh, 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 this morning we're going to read some verses between Job chapter 38 and Job chapter 41. We're not going to le- uh, read it all, but we're going to read some of it, and it's going to come up behind me on the screen, so you'll be able to follow And um, is it going to come up behind us? Yes, here we are. Just wait for it to come up on the screen next to me. Okay, here we go. This is what it says. Job chapter 38. This is what it says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel without words, without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. A little later in Job 39 where God is talking about all sorts of animals and exposing stuff that Job doesn't know. He talks about the ostrich. This is a beautiful little passage. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly, as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. The last passage we're going to read is from Job chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. 
Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Those are just some uh, of uh, the, the passage, passages from the chapters, Job chapter 38 through to 41. And it's a powerful, powerful series of verses where God is speaking to Job. You know, we've just come out of a week where uh, we've had the result of the EU referendum. Everyone has had their say. I don't know about you, but increasingly as the debate went on over the weeks and became increasingly more uh, heated and vitriolic, um, there were many people frustrated, I of uh, whom was at the, the front of that queue, that no one properly seemed to be answering the questions that I had. No one seemed to be answering that. I, I, people would say, we asked a question, and then they would start talking, but they wouldn't answer the question. They'd talk about something else, and I guess that's uh, the challenge of being a, a politician. But one of the things that struck me, if we can't agree on the facts in a straightforward, in-out uh, vote on our membership of the EU, no wonder resolving the big questions of life is impossible. And in recent weeks, as we've been unpacking the story of Job, we've been thinking about some of those questions as, we, as we've reflected on his life. Everything had fallen apart in Job's life, and he was left with a lot of questions. There were loads of things that he didn't know. There were loads of things that he wanted God to answer. Job has plenty to say to those uh, who say he's being punished by God. He's got lots to say to them, and we uh, have heard over recent weeks loads of the questions that Job has had. And even though he knows that people who are accusing him of being in the wrong, and he knows that they're wildly off beam, he is convinced that God is unfairly treating him. He feels that God doesn't care. Job wants an opportunity to press his case before God. He won't be silent. He wants to hear God speak to him. Why should I be quiet is his, the rage uh, of his heart. He needs some answers. This is what he says in chapter 30, verse 20. I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. All through the dialogue between Job and his so-called friends, God is silent. Some 37 chapters. Job is in a desperate state, both physically and emotionally. Then comes the icing on the cake. A storm, clouds all over the place. There's nothing like a good dose of British summer to knock any joy left in your soul out of it. Finally, out of the storm, God speaks. 
Well, does he answer Job? God answers Job out of the storm? Well, to be perfectly accurate, yes, he does. And no, he doesn't. Yes, he speaks to Job. But no, he doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't answer one of them. Job has had loads of questions, but God answers not one of them. David Atkinson puts it like this. God gives no answer to Job's questions. No apology for having been silent so long. No hint about Satan's wager, which we read about at the beginning. No apparent acknowledgement of Job's struggle. In fact, he doesn't answer Job's questions, even though he speaks into his situation. The first thing God does is to tell Job to be quiet. Job, be quiet. It's time to listen. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge, God says. You see, although we've caught a glimpse of what was happening in God's presence, we see that there's a battle in the heavenlies. We see Satan coming and tempting Job. Job has no idea what's been going on. He wants, Job wants an opportunity to question God, wants to ask him questions, but his request doesn't pan out as he expects. God says, brace yourself, and then proceeds to ask him questions. And as he does, Job realizes he's in trouble because he comes face to face with the God he thought he knew. You see, God speaks to Job out of the storm clouds. And throughout the Old Testament, God's presence is associated with clouds. For example, when he uh, uh, brings the, uh, uh, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, God's law to Moses on Mount Sinai, over the mountain comes a thick cloud with thunder and lightning, we read in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 19. The cloud reveals God's presence, whilst at the same time hiding his glory. Thereafter, the Israelites walked through the wilderness with uh, uh, God's presence with them. And as they went through the wilderness, God's presence was marked by the presence of a cloud by day and by night. And wherever the cloud went, they followed because they knew God was leading them through the wilderness. As the prophet Nahum puts it, God's way is in the whirlwind and the storm. It conveys something of the holiness and greatness of God. And in this moment, Job is struck silent. The God he thought he knew is far more awesome than he imagined. As C.S. Lewis hinted, he is not a tame God who we can domesticate. And yet in the moment... In that very moment where Job is overwhelmed, something deeply comforting starts to impact his soul. He starts to realize that the God of heaven actually does care. It isn't just that God comes to speak to him, although that would be enough. It's far more personal, and the writer conveys it uh, by using a different name for God. As God speaks, the Lord is referred to by the word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. It's the, it's the name that God uses when he makes personal promises to his people. And it's the name that's used as God starts to speak. In the previous chapters, 
all on bar one occasion where Job and his so-called friends are talking and referring to God. The, the name for the Lord is El Shaddai, which means the uh, God Almighty, which conveys that God is awesome, but somehow conveys that he's personally distant. And so both Job and his friends talk about God as though he is harsh and uncaring towards Job's situation. Certainly that's how Job feels. And suddenly the author breaks in and lets us know that it isn't all as it had appeared. God isn't distant and uncaring and God draws near and starts to speak to Job. Job starts to, just gets a glimpse that there's a God of grace in heaven who loves him. He has not been forgotten by God. God, Job gets far more than he pleaded for. Job's experience encourages each one of us this morning that none of us have been forgotten by God. God this morning, I believe, wants to draw near to each one of us because he loves us. The second thing that impacts Job is this, the tip of the iceberg. You see, Job thought he knew a lot. He was a wise man in his day. People would come to him for advice. His friends were wise men of the day. We live in a world obsessed with questions that need answering and problems that need solving. I remember as I was growing up, I remember that moment where you're, uh, uh, you think you know a lot about a subject and then suddenly someone comes and starts asking you questions and you start to realize you don't know as much as you thought you did. I remember my dad would come into my room, he was really interested in maths and physics and he'd start to ask me questions. And uh, he'd say, what are you doing in school uh, at the moment, uh, in maths? And I'd say, oh, we're doing um, uh, matrices or quadratic equations or uh, integration. And he'd say, oh, that's really interesting. Get me your textbook. And at that moment, my heart would start to sink inside. I'd get that sinking feeling. And he'd start to go, what's this? And I'd go, oh, um... Oh, I don't know. Well, weren't you paying attention in lesson? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, he said, well, what's this then? And then I said, well, I can't say I don't know. So I'd go, oh, um, oh, um, uh, mm, uh. oh, it's gone. It's gone. It's on the tip of my tongue. Tip of my tongue. And that would go on for a period until in the end he got really cross with me. <laughs> but the point was this. I thought I'd understood in the lesson when it came to it, I, had, I didn't have much of a clue. Every question my dad asked, the more questions he asked, the less I seemed to know. Job is in a moment here. He thinks he knows a lot. But God answers Job by starting to ask him a lot of questions. In fact, he asks him more than 75 questions. And Job quickly realizes that there is a lot he doesn't know. In fact, what he knows is the tip of the iceberg. What he doesn't know is massive beneath the surface. He starts to realize he knows very little about this world. He's already realized 
that this God is a God he didn't really know. Now he starts to realize he doesn't know much about the world that he lives in. And he starts to realize that God knows everything. God's questions are probing and they're framed in some of the most beautiful nature poetry in ancient literature. God takes Job through a journey about, of the wonder and beauty of the world he's created. Job can't answer any of his questions. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? I don't remember seeing you there. Who controls the sea? You? Really? So, tell me about the dawn and the rain, Job. So, so where have you traveled to? Have you been to the source of the springs in the sea? What about the Marianas Trench? Ah, you've been to Hengistrubi Head. Oh, well done, Job. Well done. God teases Job about geomorphology, origins of landforms. He asks him about oceanography, climatology, meteorology, hydrology, cosmology, astronomy, nephology, it's about clouds, zoology, and ornithology. God exposes how little he knows. I remember when... Uh, I was doing a geography degree in Southampton and I had to do an oceanography course. And uh, I remember we had two, there were two parts of the course. One was about tides and the, the stuff about tides was all physics. It's about how the moon causes the tides. And there was full of equations. It was, I tell you, I just sat in there and I, it was just like, it was all going over my head. Didn't understand a word of it. It was all gobbledygook to me. But it was made something to, sense to them. It made no sense to me. The other half of the course was by uh, was actually by a guy who I really came to like because he's what got me through the course. Because his course was about the nature of the sea, and so his course. He was uh, an old lecture professor, Charnock. He was uh, well known in his day. But his his lectures, basically, his lectures were: um, the sea is blue, the sea is deep, the sea is salty. I tell you, I was, I was, and when it came to the exam, we had to do one of the two, we had options. We could either do something on tides, or we could do something on the nature of the sea. Well, I'll leave you guess where where we went. (laughs) What I realized was, actually, the oceans, I thought it was a safe bet to sail through. Actually, half the course, I thought, I am in such trouble if I've got to answer questions on this. I do not understand. And Job was like, he starts to realize oceanography, well, I don't even know what you're really talking about. Job is silent. You see, God's questions keep coming and they highlight the complexity of the behavior of lions, mountain goats, wild donkeys, oxen. God seemingly laughs at the strange behavior of the ostrich. He applauds the strength and bravery of the horse and seems to celebrate the majesty of the hawk and eagle. Job is out of his depth. No wonder God's words are heavy with irony. Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. You see, God is gently driving home the point that he is in absolute control. God knows this world. He created it. He formed it. 
He's drawing, making the point to Job that Job knows nothing. The things that Job is worried about, his personal stuff, falls within the bit of the iceberg that's under the surface. And yet what he doesn't know is massive. He seems to be able to trust God about everything else in the, in the universe, in the created world. God is saying, why can't you trust me with the little bit that you don't understand, that you're bothered about? God is saying, you know nothing, I know everything. Job is left facing the question, why won't I trust him? What about us? What about the things that you're battling with, the questions you you have? Let me encourage you. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God wants to challenge you this morning. Will you trust it? Will you trust it? You see, for Job starts to realize that this is an unequal contest. Have you ever had that moment where it's the terror of overstepping the mark? I remember in school, there were moments, and uh, you'd be in the school playground, and uh, uh, you would, uh, you'd be playing, and you'd be a bit, uh, a bit gobby, and you'd, uh, with people, and, and I just remember there were moments where you'd overstep the mark, and we'd be playing football, there'd be about 40, 50 of us kicking a tennis ball around, or a tin, or a stone, or whatever we had to play football with, and um, I, I just wanted to be moments and you'd, you'd get into a bit of a confrontation. There'd be moments where you'd get into a confrontation with Andrew Hudson. Now, Andrew Hudson was the second row for the rugby team. He was six foot four. His, name, his nickname was Spud. And he was, he was, he'd lived in South Africa. He was a year older than all of us. He was massive. And there were moments when you, get, you might get into a little confrontation and there'll be a moment where you feel, you know you have overstepped the mark. And you overstep the mark and then you suddenly have that sinking feeling of terror. Oh my word, what am I going to do now? And you, you, you take the, uh, the, the best option, which is you roll your sleeves up and you run for the hills. <laughs> you run for the hills. Job realizes he's been challenging God. And God says to him, you have accused me, now answer me. And there must have been a moment, Job felt a little like that. Oh my word, what have I done? I have overstepped the mark here. He takes the only wise way out. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. God goes on to say, do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe, your, clothe yourself in honor and majesty. God then goes on to talk about the, the, uh, some of the great animals he's created, the behemoth, beast par excellence is what it means. It probably means the elephant or the hippopotamus. God is saying, I can approach this great animal. You can't even go close. 
God goes on to say he created Leviathan, which probably is probably talking about a crocodile. And he's saying, Job, you'd be foolish to go and try and catch it and domesticate it. You might try to do it, but you will soon realize what a mistake, and you will never make that mistake again. God is saying, I can do that. You can't. God is revealing to Job his great power. Job suddenly realizes this is an uneven contest. How dare he have challenged God? Job is encouraged to trust himself to the grace and justice of God. Trouble is, Job is more interested in justifying himself. That's what the passage says. More interested in justifying himself. Sometimes... We can be a little like that, can't we? I don't know about you, but I can. Grumbling, moaning, when things don't work out as we want. God wants us this morning to trust him, to trust his power and his love for us. It was an unequal contest, but Job comes to realize that the important thing is revelation, not reason. You see, there are lots of us in the world today who we desperately want answers. And until we get all the answers, we won't do anything. I was talking to a, a consultant in the hospital on Friday, and we were having a, a great chat. And, and I was talking about, I was saying, one of the reasons I am absolutely convinced in the existence of God is it said, I look at the world around, I said, I just don't believe that it can just come from uh, uh, just a few random uh, gases coming together and uh, a cell suddenly being created and, and then suddenly this cell turning into amoeba which sort of uh, develops in a primeval soup and, and then slowly comes out of, out of this and suddenly turns into, uh, over millions of years into humans. I said, I just don't believe it. I said, I believe there's a God who created the heavens and the earth. You see, can have all the facts and all the explanations, but at the end of the day, they don't stack together. And as I was talking to him, I said, there will be some things for you as a doctor. I said, you know more about this part of the body, um, glands, than many, many others. But you know what you know is not everything. And he just said, no, that's right. You see, God's answer is not found in an explanation, but it's found in a revelation. Paul Turnier says this, for God's answer is not an idea, a proposition like the conclusion of a theorem. It is himself. He revealed himself to Job. Job found personal contact with God. Job eventually declares, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, in chapter 42. You see, God's answer to all our why questions actually is a revelation of himself. It's his presence. God's, Job's greatest comfort was that God had not forgotten him and God draws near and God reveals himself to Job. And even though none of his questions were ever answered, Job was able then to leave all his whys with a God who is all-knowing, 
all-powerful and a God who cared for him. The great news for each one of us this morning is this, is that hundreds of years after Job, God broke into our world. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man. Jesus came to show us what his father is like. Jesus, we're told, is the image of the invisible God. God has revealed himself to us. Whatever you are struggling with, Jesus is the answer. I'm going to read just a passage from Matthew chapter 17. It will come up on the screen behind me. It will come up on the screen behind me. There you go. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, Job's cries are finally and fully answered. And the location is the top of a mountain. Jesus is there with three of his closest disciples. And just like Job, those disciples, what they know about Jesus is the tip of the iceberg. They clearly don't fully get who he is. They don't understand his parables. As you read through the book of Matthew, they, uh, they, there are moments they go, Jesus, explain that to us. We don't really understand and there's occasions where Jesus even says to them, are you, so, are you still so dull? Because they just don't get it. Bit by bit, they begin to see that he is both God and man. And Peter even comes and makes a great declaration of faith. He says, Jesus says, who do people say I am? And, and, and Peter gives an answer and he says, who do you say I am? Peter, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He makes this great declaration of faith. And, and then seemingly a quarter of an hour later, Jesus is having to say to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're, just, well, you're, t- you're, talking, you're not talking as God would talk. These men, they understand something, but they don't really get who Jesus is. They don't understand why Jesus is, keeps saying he's going to die. They don't understand why, what, he says when he's, uh, when he, what he means when he says oh, he's going to rise from the dead after three days. Questions, questions, questions. And in the midst of their confusion, a cloud covers the mountain. This is no normal cloud. God comes to speak to them, just as he did with Job. He simply says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When he says listen, it doesn't just mean listen, it means hear, it means listen and put into practice what he says. Funnily enough, Jesus, just like his father, doesn't answer all of our questions because he is himself the answer. 
You see, the basis of science is observation and deduction to discover the reason why things are as they are. There's a guy called Heraclitus in uh, Ephesus in about the 5th century before Christ, and he uh, taught his pupils to observe the world around them and then make deductions from it. And so the sun rises in the east every day and sets in the west. We can deduce from that something about the world around us. And the, the word he used to describe the reason why things are as they are was the word logos. It's the Greek word logos. And later, other writers, uh, they talked about logos just like the writers in the Old Testament talked about wisdom. They started to personify it. And that word logos is the root word of, uh, the, uh, of, uh, of the word, like, ologies. So when we talk about clouds, the reason why clouds, the word is nephology. It comes from the root word logos, understanding the reason for clouds. Climateology, the logos, the reason why the climate is the way it is. And as we come into the New Testament, as John wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, he uses the same Greek word, logos, in John chapter 1. And he uses the word logos as the name for Jesus. And in our version, in our gospels, it's called the word. It's the, the, uh, the word is the, it's the spoken word, but it's also the unspoken word, i.e. the word in the mind, the reason for something. And John uses that word to talk about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the reason why everything exists. He's the reason for everything. The answer to all our whys is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the reason why we can draw near to God. Everywhere I go, I, there's a heated debate about this. Why is Jesus the only way to God? It seems dogmatic, unfair, and offensive. But he is the reason why. He is the Logos. He is God's answer to all our whys. So what does Jesus say? Let's just read some of the things that Jesus says together. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? God says, listen to Jesus. Jesus says there is a perspective. There is another world. What you see now is not ultimate reality. There is a, a world. God exists. God reigns in heaven as we were hearing this morning. There is a greater perspective. Jesus says, don't throw all your lot into this world, into this life. There is another world. There is another life to come 
where we, those who put their trust in Christ, will be with their, his Father forever and ever and ever. Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Jesus says, Believe and be baptized. That's what we're doing next Sunday. If you haven't been baptized, why don't you come and get baptized next Sunday? Jesus says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says you need the Spirit. Ask him for his Spirit. You need his Spirit in these days if you're going to live in this world where there's so much pressure. You want answers to your questions You actually need the presence of the Spirit more than you need those answers. Because when you have the presence of God's Spirit with you, actually suddenly everything seems different. And you can cope and you can press on. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. That's why. God's people are to be inclusive. That's why wherever we come from, I come from Wales. I come from a working class family in South Wales. Everyone's welcome in God's family, wherever we're from. We're to love one another as he loved us. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. It affects everything, our attitudes to relationships, Marriage, money, what we say, what we do, how we treat others. Have you got lots of questions this morning? Maybe things are not working out for you. Maybe you, inside, you've got this big question, does God care? Is God interested in me? Maybe you've come this morning and You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You're thinking, oh, I don't know, I don't know. there's a God in heaven. I don't know, he's not interested in me. I want you to know that God is drawing near to you this morning. Wherever you are, wherever you're sitting, God is drawing near to you. He wants you to know that he loves you and he sent his son to redeem you, to save you, to draw you into a relationship with himself. You. Me? Yes, you. He did it. For you, because he loves you. Through it all, God wants us to know him better. He wants us to know that he's not distant and disinterested. Maybe you're feeling this morning, God is just not interested in me, in my world. Everything is going wrong. He wants you to trust him, trust his power and his knowledge and his ways, rather than focusing on what you don't know. He wants you to know Christ and he wants you to listen to him. There's a, a great story that Jesus, an encounter Jesus has with some of his friends in Luke chapter 10. And he goes to the home of two ladies, Martha and Mary. And he gets, gets into the home and he's, he's starting to teach. And, and Martha is, uh, she's great. Martha's great. She's, she's the host She's cooking dinner, she's busy cooking dinner, and she's running around, and her sister's just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And after a while, Martha starts to get a bit irritated. She's cross, she's got, she's raging, and she rages, she, eventually it bursts out. She rages her question at Jesus. Jesus, it's not 
fair. Don't you care, she says. Don't you care? I'm slaving away. I'm doing all this. Why don't you say something to my sister? Why don't you tell her to help me? She has this big raging question. It's been eaten away inside of her. She rages at Jesus. Don't you care, Jesus? Are you not interested? Can't you see the pain I'm going through? Can't you see the weight of what I'm carrying? Can't you see that she's, uh, not, she's not helping me at all? Why don't you say something and tell her? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, your heart, you're worried and anxious and troubled about so many things. Jesus pinpoints her heart. He said, there's so much going on, you don't even know what's going on in your own heart, Martha. He said, there's stuff troubling you. And he says, Mary has chosen what's better. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And I want to say to you this morning, if you know that you're, you've just been struggling with stuff, God wants you to draw near and sit at his son's feet and worship him. And as you do that, as you focus on Jesus, the Logos, the Word, the reason why, suddenly you will find God drawing near. And the answers may not come. You may not get the answer to the question that you have inside of you. But what you'll find is you get, a, you get something far better. You get the presence of God. Michael Rees puts it helpfully. Here then is a revolution for all our dreams, our dark, frightened imaginings of God. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Spurgeon said this, Are you satisfied with Christ? If you are not, you've not really got him. If you've got him, he is everything to you. Are you satisfied with Christ? Are you satisfied with Jesus Christ? Does he satisfy your soul? Does just being with Jesus, is that enough for you? If it's not, I want to say you're missing out. Because if you've got him, he's everything to you. He is the treasure in the field, worth giving up everything for. He's the pearl of great price. He is the reason why. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up, and we're going to we're going to have a just a response that's going to be a little perhaps a little bit more reflective first of all. And as the musicians lead us in a song, you may want to stand, you may want to sit, and just sit and enjoy the song, sing the song, sing through the words. You may just want to sit and listen. You may want to stand and worship. And I want to encourage you to do what you're most comfortable with. So if you want to stand, you can stand with me. If you want to remain seated, you can remain seated. But I want you in this moment to do business with God. I want you to worship Him, the living God.